Welcome to the podcast series of Raising the Bar Sydney. Raising the Bar in 2019 saw 21 University of Sydney academics take their research out of the lecture theatre and into bars across Sydney, all on one night. In this podcast, you'll hear Anna Reid's talk, Feel the Noise, How Music Connects Us Through Place and History. Enjoy the talk. Thank you, everybody. Just down near where the conservatorium sits uh, is uh, where of this large castle building. Uh, you might have come to it at the end of the Carl Expressway. And it was at that spot that the Europeans first landed. And the reason that they landed there was because there was this large open parkland. And that was the spot where the Gadigal and the Aora people used to meet for corroboree. Corroboree means meeting. And so that was the spot where they would share their knowledge through singing and through dancing. And their knowledge was about the way that they would live and the community that they had. And they were the people. And exactly where our beautiful building is, is where young men were initiated into the knowledge of the gaddy. Gaddy means uh, grass tree, uh, but the knowledge that was passed on to the boys in their initiation ground was the dog and kangaroo dance. Uh, so they knew about the livestock that was around and how to manage those people. Uh, so I really like it that the Sydney Conservatorium is now on that site because we also uh, teach knowledge through music and singing and dancing. So I'd like to pay my respects to the elders of the past, those um, who are emerging, and of course to other people of First Nations and Indigenous background, and of course to the rest of it who are mongrels like me, I welcome you very warmly as well. There <laughs> you <laughs> go, the mongrels. Uh, so I'm a very lucky person uh, because last year my son got married, and that gave me the opportunity to spend time with my daughter who lives in Perth. And after the wedding, we were in Tasmania, and we decided to go for a walk down a little country lane. Now, when you have a musical family, of course, you don't converse with words. We just happily walked down this nice little country road, scatting with each other. Um, so I was singing, and she was singing, and we were just, uh, our words started being, you know, I really love my life. Well, I don't really sucks. You know, we, we, we were singing a little bit like this. And uh, in the field beside us, there were a bunch of cows. And they were doing cow stuff. They were munching the grass. And they were looking at each other. They were, yeah, they were cows. But we suddenly noticed as we were walking down this street, what we had was this, like, you know, troop following behind us. And we had these ruminating cows just sort of moving carefully behind us and we stopped and we were still scatting and these cows came and lined up along the fence line. So we had as close as possible about 20 cows all the way along the fence line. And then there were the ones that were looking in between the other cows' feet. And then there were the ones that were on top of their friends looking over the top. And we thought this is this is really the most peculiar thing we've ever seen. So it, must, it can't just be us, it must, must be the music. And so, we, well, let's test it, let's just stop singing. And the cows lost interest and they started walking away. We went, okay, let's try something else. So we walked along the road, just, you know, 50 metres or so, and we started singing. It's like this little stampede of cows came and followed us and again started to watch. And we felt really, really mean after about 15 minutes when we decided actually we'd lost our voice and it was time to go home and have a drink of G&T, I think was our drink of choice. But 
what had happened, apart from my stepmother telling me that cows are curious and they just like things that are different, we realised that was what it was. They liked things that were different. They had noticed a variation in their circumstance. And so they were thinking, what is it about this weird thing that is happening in our little world? Well, it was scatting was happening. Um, and so that is actually a curious thing for us as people because when we notice difference, we also learn something that is new and amazing. So when I was thinking about my very first musical memory, it goes like this. I was two years old in a childcare centre. And it goes something like this. Have you ever seen a laddie go this way and that way? Did you ever see a laddie go this way and that? And then the second verse was even more intriguing. Did you ever see a lassie go this way and that way? Did you ever see a lassie go this way and that? When I hear that and think of it, I can smell the grass that was cut that day. Um, I um, remember being totally entranced by movement and the feeling. It was the first time and we were all doing it. like. We had this dance, it was pretty sophisticated dance, it meant, you know, right foot to left foot, but, you know, that was what we were doing. Eventually we got our arms swinging, that was pretty exciting as well. <laughs> and it was really, really lovely because when I got home, I said to my mother, we learnt this, this song, and she said, what was the song about? And I said, it was about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> because I only knew Lassie as a dog. <laughs> I didn't know a lassie was a word for a girl, and my, my mother thought that was hilarious, um, and then told me that lassie meant a girl and a laddie meant a boy. I thought, well, that's weird. I've, I've, I've never heard that before. And then she said, well, a long way away, there's another country, and, and, and they're just the words that people use for boys and girls in that other country. And I was totally gobsmacked, and I said, what's a country? Um, so there were lots of things about that first musical experience that I had that opened my eyes to some things that were just totally different, things that I had never quite understood before. My mother was um, quite, quite extraordinary. By the time she died, she was honestly the most conservative person I could ever imagine to meet. But in the 60s, she had long hair and was a bit of a hippie. And so we sang songs. Uh, at, I, my brother didn't sing songs. I, I, I think it was all directed at me. We, we sang songs, my mother and I, and they were the protest songs of the 60s. So, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, and they all look just the same. There's a red one and a blue one and a yellow one and a green one and a yellow one, and they're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same. Um, why, why, why do houses look like boxes? Oh, my mother explained to me that, you know, um, uh, lots of houses were just little square things. Now, I lived in Pimble. There were trees. Um, it was rather a nice environment. And they, they were, I, I thought it was so exciting, the thought that uh, there were houses made of all of these different colours. And the next thing, I, I said, well, um, what, what is ticky-tacky? And, oh, well, they just, you know, not, they don't make them very well and they might fall down. And, and, and I said, well, why do they put them on a hillside if they might fall down? Well, because that's where the city is expanding to and that hill used to be where a park used to be. And I was having my first, A, environmental lesson uh, from my mother and the use of music to teach me an environmental lesson. Uh, and I was also having my first building code experience. <laughs> um, 
And of course, what we experience today is just the same. We've got lots of houses going up all over the place, but those houses are, are being built in some, you know, substandard kind of ways. And so nothing has changed very much. We have these problems where um, all ideas and concepts, um, one is what we know about ourselves can be expanded by variation and seeing things differently because of things that you experience. In my case, those experiences both, both through song. Um, we can talk about the way that we live because of the very songs and music that we have, which can be about environment, um, it, it can be about love, it can be about all sorts of things. For our Indigenous friends, it was absolutely about the knowledge that they needed to live. Um, in a Western society, it's a little bit more oblique how that knowledge is transported through music, but it's still there. Um, and there are many different ways of music throughout the world with different contexts and societies that happen. But those experiences that I have just recounted to you are very personal to me. They are part of my experience of growing up and they're part of the society that I grew up in and they're kind of the songs that I will remember forever. The smell of them, the sound of them, the way they happened, the books that they were in, the smell of the grass, the people that I did it with. But every one of you will have a different set of things that become your musical makeup and the way that you can experience the world through those musical experiences. So musicians have grappled with these concepts for a long, long time. Um, many of you will have heard about uh, a man called Pythagoras. Um, for those of you who are mathematicians uh, in the room, you will know that because of you know, triangles and geometry and you know, equations that are a little bit tricky for a musician, but anyway, they're there. Um, and one of the things that he had noticed was that the length of a string will make a particular sound. Uh, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm a string player. I relate to that immediately. What I think Pythagoras missed was that the thickness of a string also makes a difference to the sound. But, you know, um, that concept came many centuries later that thickness and length had a difference. But what he postulated was something that was quite profound. He said that here we are in the centre of the cosmos, and that all the way around us are these planets, planets are wanderers, these stars that move around us in the earth. The sun moves around us, and the moon moves around us, and the planets and the stars all move around us. And because just a small thing like a pebble into a stream, or the wind through trees can make such a profound noise, surely these massive bodies that are flying through space must also be making a noise as they travel. And so he called that the harmony of the spheres. And why that is interesting is because he said, you can't hear it. You can't hear it because we're in it all the time. So we can't really notice it. So even silence, what we've become used to a silence actually is permeated by this really incredible, deep, universal noise. Curiously, in this modern era, they do make a noise. They're out there in the cosmos as these large bodies move, they make a noise. And these days we hear them as compression waves, and you can take the compression waves from the cosmos and put them through a computer and you can hear the sound of the cosmos. Uh, so he was right there many thousands of years ago. 
But because he was mathematically minded, uh, he wrote down the equations of proportion that would go with the size of these bodies and the sounds that they would make. And curiously, they would also relate to the sounds of strings and how um, a proportion of string could make a particular sound. And that became a Greek theoretical musical knowledge that then passed down into the European tradition. So then we have people who tried to make sense of what were the sounds of Greece because of the mathematical stuff um, that was written. Now, I find that really, really interesting because it puts music right back into the centre of where things have gone awry, I think, in the 21st century in terms of education because in the early European universities, it was music, rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, but music was there as the co-pair, with a pair with astronomy. And astronomy was meant to be the science of the eyes because you could see the planets moving around. And music was meant to be the science of the ears uh, because you could hear those proportional things that you could see with your eyes. So they ran together. Um, so if you were a learned person, not a peasant or a slave or any of those things, if you were a learned person, uh, you would uh, learn about mathematics and music and science as an inseparable partnership. Um, so for any of you who are educators, STEAM, not STEM, uh, is uh, my mantra for that. Yeah. So from these very, very early days, we have people who start uh, really thinking about what music means. Uh, one of the greats in Europe uh, was uh, a religious man. Um, he was called, well, Pope Gregory I, and we think maybe Pope Gregory II. Now, his claim to fame was that several hundred years after uh, people had started to use this concept called a chant or a plain chant, he codified them all together. Basically, he picked all the best pop songs, put them all together, and said, these are the songs that we will sing to God. Now, you've got to understand that in this society, the only learning that you would ever do would be inside the church when you were compulsorily had to go. The rest of the time, you'd spend your time working. So what you have is this massive popular populace of people who are spending some time in church, standing up behind a screen, because only the really wealthy people would be in front of the screen. Behind the screen would be all of the rest of us, um, having perhaps washed, um, maybe not. Uh, and we'd be listening to what was going on in Latin. Uh, we don't speak Latin, but music's kind of nice. And everybody would learn these pop songs, uh, because that was what was coming out. And of course, God prescribed these pop songs. Uh, and so people would sing these tunes in their homes, uh, in their bars, in their fields. And eventually, people began to start singing around those tunes. So the tunes became known as the tenor, going really, really slow underneath. And the jazz happened on the top. Um, so musicians will have their way, no matter what is prescribed. They'll find a way around, to, around their way of doing, of doing it. You're listening to Raising the Bar Sydney, 2019. But... The tunes themselves uh, gave us some ideas that have come down to now. So, for instance, you know, getting the tenor of the argument uh, means that you know what's heading through, and that comes back from that medieval period. Uh, another fellow called Guido Durezzo started to codify what music looked like on a staff. So originally everybody knew the songs because they'd heard them and it was an oral tradition for them. Uh, and so to remind people of what the oral tradition was, they put little lines above it who say, it's going up here, it's going down here, and they were called neumes. 
Guido brought it to another height where he um, added some lines and said, well, this one's actually a pitch that's defined, and this is kind of a couple of notes up before the next line of pitch. So he had a very much more accurate idea of what was going on, and they used the precious colours of red and black to be able to show you where, where these early notes were going. But more importantly, he had taken the now musical modes and showed this illiterate populace how to sing the modes by pointing at pretty much segments of his fingers. Um, and each of them described a tetrachord, which is four notes um, that, that go together. Two tetrachords, if anybody's done AMEB harmony, two tetrachords and, a, and, a, and a, um, an intervening uh, tone will make a scale of some description. So here we have these modes, and they had to count them on their hands this way, going up and down and down your palm and up the other side. Uh, and this was learning the gamma to the ut, the start to the finish. And of course, if we think of a lote, rote learning exercise, we actually take that from this, again, Renaissance medieval period, uh, which is the whole gamut. Um, that was the biggest rote learning exercise that you could have, was to take the whole gamut. So what we have now is a whole hunk of people that are learning pretty much about their society, their place in society, music in their society, how they should comport themselves in their society, how they should worship, what they should do, the songs that they know together. They have a shared knowledge of each other through a musical circuit. So I've given you a European history, but if we think about the fabulous songs and sounds of any nation on the earth, we share that similarity, that what we have are sounds and experiences that connect us to the people who are around us uh, intimately. We share a song, we know the person. We share a tune, we know the person. We know the society in which it is. And particular sounds have particular resonances for people in various lands, and usually to do with the landscape around them. So has anybody been to Bali, Indonesia? How many people know the sound of a gamelan? Yeah, a fair smattering of people. So um, uh, they were rich in metals, and so the things that they toyed around with was metalwork. So when you hit a piece of metal, you're going to get a sound. It's a pretty edgy sound. If you hit two pieces of metal, what you get is both of those vibrations and some of them rushing into each other, making a kind of a clash. And what was really, really favoured was to have two metal bars that were very, very close, but slightly different from each other, and they would play them together. And the idea was not to have them perfectly vibrating together, like we might like in the West, but to have them slightly out of phase. So what you get is this like kind of really neat, edgy sound. Um, that was a flavour in Indonesia. Uh, when we're thinking about India, uh, they had a particular um, sound of a drone uh, and a drumbeat that would move um, people again to various feelings and thoughts because of those particular modes. Even today, uh, when they start a piece of music, they will tell you what um, scale pattern is going to be used before they start it. And by telling the players what scale they're using and the audience what scale they were using, everybody now knows what mood they're going to be in. Um, so now that I'm thinking about this, this curious thing is happening to me. Um, I've got goosebumps on my arms. I have goosebumps because I'm um, talking about things that I know and love and that move me in different ways. And how many of you have listened to music and got goosebumps on, on your arms? Yeah, pretty much everybody in the room. It's, it, does, it, 
feels kind of random sometimes, doesn't it, how, how this happens. You just think about something and, and your goosebumps come up. I know that there are particular things that I can listen to which will automatically give me goosebumps. Uh, I have a range of about eight things, and I used to wonder what it was about these eight things that would always give me goosebumps. And I had a piece of uh, country music that always used to make my dog howl. Um, and, and the dog heard every sort of music under the sun, but this one recording would make it howl. What, why was that? He obviously had some relationship to that sound that did something for him. But for me, those eight pieces that... Look, I've still got goosebumps. I'm, I'm really sorry. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's happening. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I used to think about what, what was it about these sounds that have this effect on me? And I, I figured it out. It's actually a falling minus second makes me get goosebumps. <laughs> um, so uh, everybody will be, be slightly different. Uh, but it connects me to the musicians who played that music and by connecting me to the musicians who play the music, it also connects me to the time and era in which that music has been played. And it connects me to the other listeners of that music, not only the players, but the other people who've experienced in the past. So by listening, I can experience the whole world from top to bottom, side to side, um, going back in, you know, in any era and also projecting forward. I'll be thinking the music that I create myself will have an impact on the people who follow by, let alone the people that might happen to be in the room tonight. So, music is meaningful to us as people. Music is something that we do together. Music is something that helps us bring out the humanity in our lives and helps us to understand how strange and how wonderful our neighbours happen to be. So, it's over to you guys. I'd like you to copy this, please. Uh, there was five there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's try and get that together, okay? Listen. Now, uh, we've got a couple of people clapping out of phase. Let's just try and be a little bit accurate here. Here we go. Uh, that got you playing in triplets, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty happy with that too. Okay, so one of the things that draws us together is rhythm. Uh, we walk with rhythm. Uh, there was this absolutely fantastic moment uh, watching the Millennium Bridge uh, in London when they were opening it, and it, it was a, I had an engineering friend at the time who had been partially responsible for the building of, of this, and she was being interviewed uh, on uh, the BBC. And behind her was the... Uh, big screen with people walking across the Millennium Bridge and she's talking about the bridge and its manufacturer and the, the reporter said, um, well, it's really very interesting. Can you tell me, you know, why it is that bridge sways um, when they walk? And she looked behind her and went, quick, tell everybody to get off it. <laughs> because the people walking in time across the bridge synchronised with each other, which meant everybody was going to the left and everybody was going to the right, and it started to make the bridge sway, which is not what normally happens. Normally everybody's out of sync and, and it's perfectly safe, but when it was swaying with everybody's weight going backwards and forwards, they had to close it for ages to fix up that design fault. But um, uh, so, so rhythm is something that we do innately and we do it together innately. 
So I'd now like you to um, think not only of your hands, which are a fabulously percussive instrument, uh, but of the tables and the glasses that you have in front of you. And so I'd like to go back to our very first rhythm, which is... <coughs> and now I would like you to take the same rhythm with something to do on your table, on your table, on your glass, your glass on your table, something else like that. So I will clap it and then you will do your thing. Okay, we're pretty groovy at this and you're all doing very, very nicely. So now we're going to try and work together as, um, uh, yeah, in parts. I, I think that's going to be good. Um, and at <laughs> um, the second part is going to be uh, people who like to speak instead of plink. Um, and you guys who like to speak and not plink are going to say this phrase. I think we'll all practice it first. Singing sad songs for the sea and bees. Okay, I'll give that to you again. Singing sad songs for the sea and bees. You got it? Okay. Singing sad songs for the sea and bees. And now we're going to say it real slow. Singing sad songs for the sea and bees. Yeah, that sounds more like a song. Now we're going to say it real soft. Singing sad And everybody can do it really, really soft, but at your own pace. Okay, you've got it now. Um, so uh, one of the nice things about music is dynamics. Um, and pitch and rhythm. We're not going to deal so much with pitch, but we are going to deal with dynamic and rhythm. Uh, so this half of the room that, you know, you can decide which half you're on, but this side, which has predominantly got glasses and tables, you guys are the rhythm section. You guys are the C's and B's team. Okay, so we're just going to start off with the rhythm section. You're going to do a couple of things. Uh, you've got your regular one. Yes. And some of you are going to go. And you can choose which one you want to do. So we'll just track, practice the rhythm session. One, two, three, four. <laughs> it's really embarrassing when you're loud and you make a mistake, doesn't it? Is it? But you know, keep going. Okay, I actually find you a little bit unconvincing. Um, <laughs> You, you've got the best and easiest part, but what I'd like you to do now is try and be a little bit more rhythmical. So, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Lovely. That sounds beautifully industrial now, so don't forget what you've done. Okay, this team, sad songs for the C's and B's, really slowly. Sad songs for the B's and C's. Now, really loudly. Okay, let's put our choir together. Are we all ready? One. Uh, we're going to start off real loud. B's and C's, okay? One, two, three, four. Ah, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 the, the rhythm team is a little slow. <laughs> um, and you've got to like follow the rhythm real careful. So one, two, three, four. 
Lovely. Okay, now do you feel like you all know each other now? Yeah, uh, you, you should do. You should be able to go home and remember this as an experience. Um, hopefully the people who are the percussion team will remember the ecological message that I'm trying to get across tonight, that music means something for us and it means something for our environment and we have to think about that as a concept. I'm sitting here with my climate change colleagues um, who are my students who rushed out um, for the climate change strike, which I utterly supported, but they were really marvellous. On the night of the strike, the night before, they sent out a Facebook message that said, one of them said, here are all of these protest songs, bring a really discordant instrument with you. <laughs> and, and so they chuffed off and, and they did that. That was really fun. But um, this is, for me, one of the important issues of our time is what we do with climate and um, how we manage that and thinking about how we can use our music to affect change, be it climate or be it anything else, I think is probably one of the most important things that we can do. And so I'll just finish this by saying there was this most incredible singing revolution um, both in the 1970s and in the 80s um, in Estonia where they were people who were politically oppressed for, for so long, it's ridiculous, 300 years, and they kept thinking they were going to get some freedom at some stage. But in order to finally to become an independent nation from Russia, they <coughs> sung. The entire nation sung. There were 1.3 million people, and half of them sang in a choir. Um, and they just would spontaneously uh, go into the parklands and start singing, and they sung their way to freedom. So music has a power that is quite extraordinary and as musicians we don't need to just create nice music we create music that can change the world so thanks everybody thank you for listening to the podcast series of raising the bar sydney if you want to hear more podcasts from raising the bar head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au